Welcome to the Achievable Podcast, where we help you start your finance career by passing the FINRA SIE exam. Hey guys, welcome back to the Achievable Podcast. I'm here again with Brandon Rith. You want to say hi, Brandon? Hey, everybody. Hey guys, and uh, we're here today to dig into the hiring process of a financial firm. Um, this is a pretty important topic, and uh, it's really important sort of for you as maybe someone who's a college student or looking to switch careers to understand how the hiring process works because it's actually a pretty uh, robust and sort of developed hiring process with regards to uh, these highly regulated firms. Um, and to give you a sense of like timeline and how to put your best foot forward when applying for these jobs. Uh, and, and just really quickly again, uh, to remind you guys, my name is Tyler York. I'm here from Achievable. Uh, we have partnered up with Brandon Rith here of Basic Wisdom to build a FINRA SIE course that you can take on your phone or computer. Uh, it's free to try, and we'd love to have you check it out at uh, www.achievable.me. And then, uh, Brandon, yeah, if you want to explain what you do as well. Basic Wisdom is my company that I founded that, you know, simply stated, just help people pass financial licensing exams. Uh, and whether that involves uh, partnering with, with Achievable and releasing our SIE app or, or tutoring or, or teaching classes for financial companies, we, uh, I do it all under Basic Wisdom. Yeah. Great. Well, yeah, let's jump right into the, to the topic at hand then. Um, first, then I think, you know, to give you guys an overview of what we're going to cover today, uh, with the financial firm hiring process. First, we're going to talk about like getting in the door. Essentially, you know, getting an interview in the first place is actually uh, a, a essentially a process, right? Like a job search process. You can take a lot of the emotion out of it by um, you know you, uh, applying process to get the results that you want. Uh, the second piece is then once you're in, you know, once you're in the system and you're doing your interviews with these firms, how does that process actually work, right? You've got sort of a phone interview, you've got a second interview that uh, can be sometimes on-site, sometimes not. You'll have an aptitude test and then you'll have to uh, handle like a negotiating your offer if they want to bring you on. Um, and then last is you know, starting your employment there. So uh, I think you know I'll, I'll mostly talk about kind of the first part because I've actually um, gotten pretty good myself at sort of like a job search process and have some tips on that on how to get in the door. Uh, and then Brandon, having worked at Fidelity Investments for I think what ten years. Yep. Yeah, um, he has really good understanding of how these big firms uh, do their hiring. So then he'll he'll be the one covering most of the second half. When you're thinking about getting yourself a job, you should really almost approach it like you're doing sales for yourself. Um, and this isn't how you don't have to overthink that too much, but essentially, what I mean by that is that, um, you know, if you're trying to have three job offers to choose between in companies in a certain field, you want to kind of back that up and you say, okay. Let's say I get into sort of the interview process with 12 companies. I would expect that I would get offers from three of them. Okay, how do I get interviews from 12 companies? Well, backing that up again, getting into the interview process with 12 companies, if you assume, say, one out of three wants to meet with you, that means you've got to reach out to and apply to 36 companies, right? So that math may vary depending on your industry or uh, what you're looking at, but... 
for five, I mean, for, for, I, I've been in tech for a while and I use sort of the, uh, like the 10% rule, which is for every 10 jobs you apply to, you get kind of one final offer, assuming that you're applying to jobs that make sense for you and you're qualified for. Um, I don't know if that ratio is similar or different for finance, Brandon. We're pretty close. Uh, the numbers might be stacked a little bit more against you if you're looking for an entry-level job. Uh, when I was initially applying to jobs back in 2006, it probably felt like one out of every 20, maybe out of one out of every 30. But of course, uh, it's dependent on your region, depending on the economy at the time. But I'd say we're not terribly far off those numbers. Yeah, and I think more, I, I say this mostly more to advise college students that um, oftentimes you, when you're in college, you kind of like apply to three to five jobs and then freak out about it a little bit, right? But if you're if you're applying to 30 or 50 jobs, suddenly it's a lot less emotional because you just have so many things in your pipeline that you're working on, right? So when I say sort of, look at it like a sales process for yourself. That's really what I mean. And in a sales process is really just to put it simply, um, first you do what's called prospecting. So you build your list of 50 companies that you want to apply to and 50 that have job openings that make sense for you and are in your field of interest or are a, a role that you're interested in, even if it's not necessarily in the field that you're interested in. Let's say you want to do marketing. Maybe you're doing marketing for... Uh, medical instead of education when your passion's education, but it's still the right type of uh, role, right? So you build your list of, of good companies that you want to work for. Uh, if you are really advanced, you can like prioritize it and think about you know what cities they're in and things like that, and what then build a spreadsheet for it. But at the very least, you need to build what you're going to apply to. Then you want to essentially. Uh, try to stack all of your outreach within the same like week or two. So build, you know, write out your cover letters ahead of time. Do your resume definitely ahead of time and, and get it really polished. Um, and then try to blast everybody kind of at once because that way everyone's on the same timetable. Uh, and what it does is you'll get those offers, those three to five offers, in roughly the same time period, assuming everything kind of goes at a similar pace. And that helps create competition for you. It gives you confidence when you're doing interviews, and it gives you confidence during the offer negotiation stage, which we'll talk about later. Um, but as far as, so that's sort of the process. And as far as getting your foot in the door, I think that sort of there's like a stack rank of, of three ways to do it, um, particularly if you're like a college student that's just starting out. Uh, the first is getting referred into the company. And to be honest with you, like, it's not totally fair, but it is the way the world works that if your family friend knows someone who works at a firm or even if some one of your professors knows somebody that works at a firm and likes you, uh, that is your best bet for getting a, in the door. Um, it doesn't close out like you getting a job at all. Um, but it is definitely, I think people just at the end of the day, when you're hiring someone who's entry level, uh, who's just out of college, you're mostly kind of going on like their character. You don't have a ton of work experience to go off of. So having a reference, right. Having, Oh, you know, Bob, it's Bob's, uh, cousin or Bob's daughter. Who's like looking for this job, et cetera. 
that actually gives you like pretty strong uh, social proof that like this other person is vouching for you. Oh, totally. Um, what's that saying? It's not what you know, but who you know. Uh, th- that couldn't be more true with an entry-level job getting into finance. I- I'd recommend to everyone out there, n- no matter how introverted you may be, and I, I consider myself an introvert, uh, ch- check with your network. And whether that means talking with your family members or some friends, you may have a connection out there that you may not even be aware of. Uh, For instance, my parents had uh, some family friends that I didn't even know at the time, and their son worked for Fidelity. He was actually pretty high up in the company. And because of him, I got an interview, and that interview led into a career that I had no idea where it would take me, but ultimately here I am today. So um, it's one thing to submit your your resume to as many employers as you can, but definitely utilize the resources that you may not even be aware of. Uh, If you don't have uh, necessarily a big network or if you don't have anyone that you can find that, that might be able to help you get a job interview, then make sure your resume is as clean and unique as it possibly can be. You have to remember that a lot of these large employers are seeing hundreds of resumes and applications on a weekly basis. So if there's a typo or if there's something wrong with your resume or if it just doesn't stand out, you're probably not going to make the cut when they decide to do the initial interviews and start bringing in people to to make the hires that they're looking for. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, we can probably even do a whole separate podcast on like how to build a good resume um, because it took I mean, even when I've applied for jobs myself, um, I've had my same experience, right? Like, I've had resumes get no traction, and then I've, like, redone it and gotten a ton of traction with, like, very similar roles. Um, so it actually does make a difference, I think. And it makes it more of a difference uh, the older you get also. So, like, caveat on that. Um but yeah, so, uh, definitely get a referral. Definitely make sure your resume is good. And frankly, if you're getting a referral from someone who's in the industry, like let's say uh, your father works at Fidelity and then you're applying to Fidelity, obviously not to work for him, but like for something uh, pretty distant, you can have him look at your resume from the eyes of someone who's actually in the industry which is the best feedback you can get. Like a lot of times college students giving each other feedback is kind of like the blind leading the blind. Um, And so definitely want to try and get the best feedback you can for that. Um, And then, yeah, I think, you know, start with a referral if you can. Uh, Put, you know, in your spreadsheet that you're building, write out like what referrals you could get to each company if you have them. If not, that's fine. They just go into the, I don't have a referral list. Um, The second step is leveraging and this is most of this stuff's mostly for college students so it can apply to uh other career fairs that are outside of college but like leveraging your campus um resources which are job fairs and career fairs uh oftentimes the people that are in charge of career services at your university are going to put on a couple of these a year um and then also talking to career services about what introductions they can make for you to companies particularly in your region and if you work at a good university most of the time they'll have career services and they'll have um they're going to be trying to build connections with local businesses that are interested in hiring from their uh, university right so you can get on a much shorter list instead of the 300 right that brandon was talking about maybe you're on the list of 
12 students from local college next to this branch that this uh, you know this branch has had a lot of success hiring from and now you're on a much shorter list right so i think that that can make a big difference absolutely um, yeah we live in the age of technology and it's undeniable that you can click a few buttons and get your resume sometimes dozens of different places all at once but you have to remember that you are one of hundreds if not thousands of other people out there that are searching for the same opportunities and just by sending a few pieces of information electronically, you're, you're really not going to make as much of an impact on the people that you're trying to get in touch with as it would be if you were able to talk to them in person. Uh, and I speak to that just being on the other side, you know, working for a large financial firm where I saw what happened when we would comb through uh, resumes electronically. And a lot of that's automated. You know, our systems would just throw throw resumes out the window if it if it didn't meet certain characteristics. So even if that wasn't your intention, or even if that's not truly who you are, it's possible you get lost along the process if you're just doing it electronically. If you have the opportunity to go to a career fair and, and talk to the people in person that might be making the hiring decisions, that will put your foot in the door much more often than a electronic resume ever will. So I'd always recommend go, go to those career fairs, talk to the people there, ask some intelligent questions, and, and, and for yourself more than just for the company, figure out if you fit in their culture, figure out if you're a good fit for the job. And if you are truly interested in that job, get some information from that person. Follow, follow up your conversation with, say, an email. Or, you know, Thank you for talking to me at the career fair. My name's Brandon Rith again. Here's my resume. I'd love to talk further about this job. I'm very interested. Yeah, exactly. And I and I think that too, it's important to, you know, you are making an impression with someone who's not oftentimes not directly related to the hiring process. So the stakes are a little lower and you can kind of relax a little bit. But at the same time, you definitely want to put your best foot forward, right? You wanna be you wanna be polished, you wanna look like professional. Um, both in your dress and sort of your appearance, right? Like you want to make sure that your hair is like combed and maybe even styled that day. Uh, you want to be wearing like good shoes, like formal shoes with your formal clothes. Um, and you want to be prepared, right? So show up with your resume in like one of those little 10 or $20 binder books you can get at an office supply store. Um, just really kind of look put together, yeah, and then the uh, the third and sort of the the least attractive way, but still one of the most important and still probably going to be about half of your list, is directly applying to jobs. Uh, and so, with um, depending on what kind of finance you're trying to do, there are actually different resources that you can use to try and figure out when companies will have like internship programs open or things like that. Uh, for financial firms in particular. There is a a process where they have like an application page for like summer 2019 or summer 2020 internship program. They open it months and months in advance, uh, and they, you know, route their sort of applications to that program through this page. Right? There are other fields and other jobs where it's not nearly as formalized, but in finance, it's very formalized. Um, yeah. And, and like I said before, when you're applying to jobs, uh, have your resumes and cover letters, uh, prepared ahead of time. You, I mean, when I do this myself, I generally have sort of a few templates, like you don't need to make 
50 resumes and 50 cover letters for 50 companies, you, you will probably find that the majority of what you want to say overlaps for each one. Um, but also you do want to make sure, for instance, that if your cover letter is talking about how much you are really excited about finance and then you also are applying to like an oil and gas job, uh, you need to make sure you switch that out, right? Make sure that you, you don't kind of commit any faux pas. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, build your templates out, uh, and have everything ready to go when, for your direct applications and then send it all out at the same time. I mean, that's the, like the biggest tip I can, I think I can give is if you, if you send out all of your direct applications together, right? Maybe you do it like a week after you go through all your referrals because referrals can be pretty time consuming. Um, you'll really, it'll really help you because you'll be doing interviews pretty consistently over the next couple of weeks with a bunch of different companies and, and, and having that be something you're doing, spending a lot of your time on in a short window of time makes you better, makes you more confident. And also you don't feel like this one job is one that you desperately need to get either, which I think helps a lot. One thing that may be interesting for some of our listeners who may already be employed is the idea of going on interviews even though you've already got a job. I've got a lot of colleagues that do this on a regular basis where oh, probably once or twice every three or four months, they go out and send out the resume to a bunch of different employers that are in similar fields or fields that they may be interested in. And you know whether they're, they're interested in actually leaving their current employment or not, the, the opportunity for them to interview and go through that process on their own outside of the, of the company they work for, I, I think helps sharpen that skill. Um, you know, we, we do live in an age where millennials nowadays are having multiple careers. I, I, I can't remember what the numbers are, but it's somewhere around six to seven different career changes over the life of the average worker now. So uh, if you are introducing yourself into that hiring process consistently, you know, that will help you the, the day that you are serious about potentially making a career change. So that might be something that uh, our listeners might want to entertain the idea of doing in the future. Yeah, exactly. And it also, um, it's, it's a great social proof way that you can kind of force upon the people that you're talking to, right? Um, you know, like one of the fun tricks that you learn from like fundraising, but also you can use in this is you say, oh, that's such a great point blah, blah, blah at the other company also said that. And then like, they're just like, oh crap, he's talking to, they're talking to Edward Jones and Fidelity. Oh crap, right? I got to get this guy. And and so it just changes people's mindset a little bit. It certainly does. Uh, coming from the other side, when I was part of the hiring process with my previous firm, uh, people would do that. And, and I, I don't know if they were doing it on purpose, but they would drop subtle hints that they were uh, interviewing at other places and they had interest from other companies. And I, it's, it's probably pretty similar to dating. You know, uh, it, it, whenever you're seeing someone and, and maybe you, they drop a clue that they might be out there dating other people, you know, that adds a kind of a, a little bit of mystique to that person. Uh, it's it's intriguing, and, and you might want to try to grab them and, and hold on to them if you really like them. So that's definitely a good resource, a good tool for you to use in these interviews. Yeah, and I think, um, yeah, so that kind of covers like sort of the application process and getting in the door. It's actually something that I've thought about putting on our blog, like putting out like a, a, a downloadable Google Doc where that like – 
shows you how to build this yourself. Um, and I think, you know, I think it's something we'll touch more on, but, uh, for the purposes of this podcast, yeah, that's how you get in the door. It's referrals, best career fair or working through career services, um, at your college or your hiring fair at your college is second best. Uh, and then third is a direct application online. Um, and so now, you know, I want to shift gears and, and kind of hand over the mic to Brandon a bit more to talk about how the hiring process works specifically at financial firms once you are in the door, right? So once you've got that first phone interview scheduled, um, you know, how, what happens next? And I think that's a great place for you to take it away. Yeah, thanks, Tyler. Um, so I'm going to talk mostly from my own experience, and I should preface everything by saying that every hiring process is going to be unique. It's going to be a little bit different. But uh, as our learners know, and I feel like I've repeated this over and over, uh, I worked for a large investment firm for a number of years, uh, in particular Fidelity Investments. And, and I, I also had colleagues that worked for other companies, other larger companies. And, and I'll tell you that, that usually the larger the financial firm, the more, the more likely is that, that their process is going to be somewhat like what we're going to talk about today. Uh, if you work, f- if you try to apply to a, maybe a smaller, more boutique firm, the process is, is probably going to be a little bit different. But um, you know, the the, f- the first thing that's going to happen after you've gotten your foot in the door, and that could have been from you know initial career fair conversation or from you just submitting your application on their website, is uh, if the company is interested in you, they're they're going to start with a initial phone interview. And in that initial phone interview, it's nothing. Nothing's going to be too heavy. You're not going to have too many crazy conversations over numbers or salary or you know job requirements. Uh, I, I find that those initial, those first interviews that you have with these larger companies are more on the, uh, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, a f- the fluffier side. Uh, a lot of times, uh, the recruiter or the hiring manager is trying to see if you're personable. Uh, especially given the fact that a lot of roles and a lot of jobs in finance are kind of headed more towards the relationship management side. You know, we, we have computers these days that do a lot of the number crunching and, and a, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the things that used to happen in kind of old school finance, we've got computers that take care of that. So as the human being that's, that's not really needing to do those, those calculations anymore, a lot of times our roles are more, you know, customer facing and making sure that we retain and, and, and uh, nurture our relationships with our customers. So I really, I really think that your first interview is going to be a lot of just conversation about who you are and, you know, trying to see if you can hold a conversation, trying to see if you're personable on the phone. And, and ultimately, um, you know, do you fit into what they're looking for as a applicant? Um, again, they're not going to go too far into depth into your background or into what your, um, you know, why you might be good or bad for the job, but it's very much a feeling out process. And, and in my experience, you know, um, a, a bunch of people do make it past that first initial phone interview. Um, you know, it's going to go one of two ways. Either they're going to say, Hey, great conversation. We'd love to bring you in for our second interview, which is likely going to be in person. Or, you know, if for whatever reason it just didn't work out for you, um, they, they will likely send you a nice email saying, hey, thank you for applying. Thank you for the conversation. Uh, but we're going to be looking for other candidates at this point in time. Right. And if you do fall out of the first phone interview, I don't think you should necessarily take it as a sign that you did terribly as much as maybe they were looking for someone who had a certain experience or a certain thing that they have done in the past and you didn't have that. And it's not like you shouldn't take it personally. 
I think that that advice probably goes for the whole process, actually. Like, it just like dating, right? Like, a lot of the times it's not you, it's them. And so you just have to kind of keep going and not really worry. Oh, totally. Uh, don't give up. Uh, you know, we probably, in my previous experience, we, we probably denied several very capable people in those first interviews and uh, never take it personally. Uh, going back to what Tyler was saying earlier, that, that's why it's really important for you to put your uh, to put yourself out there to as many places as, as possible. Ultimately, not every single place is going to work out. In fact, only one of those places that you apply to is going to work out. So the more options you have, uh, the the less personal I think it becomes along the way, and, and the more focused and and uh, driven I think you ultimately can be in the end. Yeah. So two two more things about the initial phone also that I think are important. Uh, the first is they are, especially for these like sort of straight out of college jobs, just trying to make sure that maybe not that you were lying necessarily, but that you didn't overstate what you knew or what you did on your resume. And that's another overall tip. Like don't lie. It makes everything much more complicated and it's just better to not do it. Um, and then the second piece that they're thinking about, um, is they're trying to see how sort of like tight your messaging is around like your el- essentially your elevator pitch like who you are as well as um you know how concisely you can talk about like why you're excited about the job whether you researched the company that you're talking to to at at that moment or not right it's really just kind of checking to see if you've done your homework and uh, prepared for the interview at all, uh, which tells you more about the person than honestly, like a lot of the things that you talk about in the interview. It's like how people prepare. Yeah, that is huge. Uh, whenever I was doing an interview of any form, that that was always one of my first questions I would ask, at least in the first interview, was, you know, "What is your understanding of what we do as a company? What is your understanding of the job?" I think that is one of the few ways that you can royally mess up an interview um, is if you don't understand what the company does or if you don't understand the generalities that revolve around the role that you're applying for. Um, now, a lot of times these these job postings are vague and don't have a ton of information in there about what, what exactly you're going to be doing on a day-to-day basis. Uh, but at the very least, uh, coming from the other side, I was just looking for someone to to generalize what our company did or to generalize what the job uh, posting was about. And if you come back with something that's just completely contrary to what the company does or what the job is, or if it's just blatantly wrong, that's that's a big strike and that's really hard to recover from, to be honest. So definitely do your research before you go into these companies. And, and you don't need to be an expert. You just need to have maybe a few bullet points on both who the company is, what they do, and what the job entails. Yeah, exactly. Like, we're not saying do four hours of research per company, right? But you should just know the basics when you're going into the first interview, for sure. All right. I think that leads us to the second part of the hiring process. Uh, If you make it through the first interview and they decide to go to the second step with you, congratulations, You've, you've made some progress. Uh, now, the, the the second part usually comes with a second interview. Uh, a lot of times jobs these days have two, three, four interviews as a part of their process. But for an entry-level finance job, you're probably looking at two interviews. The second interview is definitely going to be the more important of the two. 
normally speaking, uh, they're probably going to invite you to their campus or their office. Or if you can't make it for whatever reason, maybe you're you're not in the state or across the country, uh, they'll likely have this as a webcam interview. Uh, you know, the first thing that I'd recommend to you is whatever time they set up, make sure you are on time to that interview. Oh, yeah. Be like 15 minutes early. Uh, and if you're not 15 minutes early, you're already late. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, you need to, especially if you live in a big city with lots of traffic, I tell you, assume there's traffic, assume that there's going to be a problem with you getting there. You got to be on time. Not to mention also that... Um, it stresses you out. And then let's say you were like really cutting it close, but you made it in like two minutes before the interview, you're all stressed out. And so you're not in a good place to like really put your best foot forward either. Yeah. So bottom line, get there early. All right. Well, let's say you get there early. Everything's perfect. Uh, what's normally going to happen in this second interview, especially if it's in person, uh, is you're going to be greeted by probably two to three uh, different uh, hiring managers or just people that are part of the hiring process. Maybe there's some HR people there, etc. cetera. Um, but you're going to be greeted. Um, and we would normally give a campus or if you want to just think about an office, uh, just just a tour of the area that, that our future employees would be working at. Now, when you're going on this tour, in the back of your head, you're probably just thinking about the interview that's about to come. And you're probably thinking through, oh, here are all the things I need to say. Here's how I need to present myself, etc. So it's it's really hard to, to be present in that moment. But I'd highly recommend that you pay attention as, close as, as closely as possible when you're going through that tour, mainly just to make sure that this is actually the company you want to work for. Uh, I mean, remember, an, an interview is a two is a two way road. I mean, yeah, you need to get them to to get to the point where they want to hire you, but at the same time, you, this is your human capital you're putting into the firm, and you ultimately want to make sure you're working for a company that that fits who you are. So, you know, take a look around. Uh, do the people in the office do they seem like people you might be interested in hanging out with? Do they seem like like they could be friends of yours? Um, you know, what, what type of an office setting is it? Is it loud and, and crazy? And if, if you're the type of person that can't deal with that, that type of stuff, then maybe this is not the right fit. Um, you know, just make sure that, that the surroundings feel like a comfortable place that you feel like you can be productive in. I, I think that campus tour is a little bit more important than most people get a, give it credit for. So just pay attention. And then normally what's going to happen after that is that you're going to go into a meeting room, sometimes small, sometimes big, but you're going to go into a meeting room and you're probably going to be interviewed by more than just one person. Uh, maybe if you're lucky, you get one person, but always at, uh, at Fidelity, we always uh, had a two plus person interview panel, which can be a little bizarre. It can feel a little bit like it's a, a team working against you. You know, d- depending on whatever their dynamic is between the two hiring managers, you might feel like you have a good cop, bad cop type of a situation. You might feel like you have two people that are hounding you for answers, or you might feel like you have two people that are really nice. They're just trying to figure out who you are as a person. Uh, and, and that can be a little bit of a bizarre process within itself, but just breathe. And I think ultimately you're going to be fine. And don't be too concerned if you get a hiring manager that may seem a little bit more, um, you know, unwelcoming. Well, it's not, it's usually not even their main job. It's usually like, oh, I have to take 30 minutes that I want to do something else and to go talk to some person I don't know. So, yeah. And I don't mean that in like a bad way. It's just like, therefore don't really get too wound up about like how they treat you or even like if you think it went well or not 
Right. Because it also just totally depends on the person. That is absolutely right. Um, I, when I was interviewing people uh, at Fidelity, I, I was pulled away from my full-time job. Every time I had to go do a job interview, I was pulled away from teaching in some form or fashion. You know, some days it felt, I felt good about it. Sometimes I, I, if I had nothing going on teaching-wise, I would go do the interview. I'd, I'd actually be excited to do the interview. Uh, but then there would be some days that I was just, I had so much going on and I knew that going to do an interview meant that I was staying late at least a couple hours at work just to make up my work. You know, on days like that, I probably was got a little bit more frustrated, a little bit, a little bit uh, easier and a little bit quicker than I normally would. So hopefully that didn't carry, carry too far into the interview. And, and if you feel that energy from a, from a manager that might be, might, might be interviewing you, don't take it personal. Um, you're not the first person they've interviewed most likely. Um, you're one of many people, and they've got their own stuff going on. Now, in terms of the the specifics of the the interview and the questions they're gonna gonna ask, this is where you're gonna see the more difficult questions. Uh, this is definitely where you want to consider preparing for your interview and, and maybe diving a little bit deeper into, you know, what what type of questions to expect, um, you know, etc. Uh, there are a lot of resources online like Glassdoor that'll explain uh, where people will disclose what kind of interview questions they see when they go to different types of companies, but. Um, you know, at Fidelity, we, we, we asked a lot of behavioral type questions and we did not ask easy questions either. Um, you know, questions like, you know, describe to us a difficult situation with a client, um, and tell us where you went wrong. You know, uh, in in the back of your head, you're probably thinking, no, geez, I, I don't really want to, I want to, I don't want to put myself out there as someone who makes mistakes, but you got to remember that everyone makes mistakes. Ultimately what we were looking for in those types of questions was for the interviewee to be able to describe the situation, to accurately and I guess uh, with with a little bit of wisdom, be able to look back on the situation and tell us what they did right, what they did wrong, and how they learned from it. And uh, you got to remember that we as humans we make mistakes, right? Um, so it's important to get ready for those types of interview questions. And I, I'd always recommend that beforehand that you do some research, try to figure out what type of questions you're going to see in the interview process. And maybe even grab a partner, whether that's a friend or a family member, and maybe role play that interview process a little bit to get yourself used to those types of questions. Yeah, definitely. I think that your your partner in this could be like a parent, right? Usually, at least my my dad always uh, was willing to be that guy. But I think that you know, depending on sort of your relationship with your parents, you could ask them. You could also ask a friend, um, particularly if. You and a good friend of yours are both kind of trying to get jobs at the same time. It's a great person to team up with and to do these interview questions back and forth to each other and kind of critique each other's answers. Um, at the end of the day, though, regardless of how well the answer portrays you or whatever, I would say, again, one, do not lie, right? Like, we're not looking for you. Oh, what was the worst experience you ever had? And you're like, well, it was terrible and everything worked out really well. Like, that's actually probably uh, almost never the case, right? Like, usually if you're trying to point out a time where things went badly, you should instead focus on, like, what did you learn? Well, like, how did, what mistakes did you make that you now recognize were mistakes and that you would change, right? Um, so be honest and, and upfront. And also, I think, um, like Brandon said, uh, a lot of it has to do with just, like, are you prepared for this question? And did you have a, like a well put together packaged answer about it? Uh, not scripted, right? Like no one really likes scripted, but I think that if you are prepared for these difficult questions, even if your answer is not like an A plus answer, 
the fact that you're prepared gives you a big advantage and it makes you look a lot better. We now, I think we live in a, in a society where we're, you know, we are encouraged to make mistakes and to try new things. And, and if, as long as you get that across, even if you made a mistake or fell short in a situation, you know, maybe you're explaining, you know, a time that you helped a really difficult client and maybe it, it ended in disaster. As long as you are able to explain how, what you learned from the situation and how it helped you in the future, that's what they're looking for. We're looking for someone who can learn from their mistakes and get better over time. Yeah, and depending on the culture, but I think you know this is pretty universal. Also, just admit that they don't know something or that they were wrong about something because there are people that don't do that and they're very difficult to work with. So. Are. So bottom line, you should not feel hesitant or afraid to share any mistakes that you've made in the past. And in, in fact, it's probably would help you in those interviews if you can demonstrate that you're analytical and are able to look back on on where you fell short and that you can implement changes to avoid those those mistakes in the future. Uh, I, I think today we live in a world, especially in co- corporate culture, where we're encouraged to try new things and to make mistakes. As long as, as those mistakes eventually are leading to a better and a brighter version of yourself, uh, I don't think you can go wrong with that. So um, I think that brings us to the to the end of the interview. I mean, just to get back to those questions, you're going to go through a number of usually behavioral based questions, and for these entry level jobs, you know, sometimes you'll get the, the the normal the normal questions like you know, tell us more about your background, uh, you know, to tell us why you think you're a good fit for this role. Um, normally, the, that second interview would last anywhere between thirty minutes to an hour. Um, I don't expect it to go longer than that. Um, but at the end of that interview, you'll uh, exchange pleasantries, shake hands, uh, and it's probably good on you to thank them for the opportunity. Uh, and that may or may not be the end of the interview. For for some of the larger companies, that might be it. They might say, thanks for coming by. We'll be in contact. Shake your hand and, and walk you to the door, and then you go on with your day. Um, some companies will have one last part of this, quote, second interview, and that last part may involve an aptitude test. Now, uh, uh, an aptitude test might be a little, a little daunting, a little intimidating. But for some of these larger companies that that see you know, hundreds and hundreds of potential uh, potential hires, uh, sometimes on a weekly or a monthly basis, you know, one way that they can gather gather some data on whether or not they think you can pass an exam is by giving you an aptitude an aptitude test. Uh, now, these tests are bizarre. Um, you know, if you've ever taken an exam where you see questions like, you know, Tom is Sally's brother, Sally's son is the cousin of Jeff, Jeff is. The uh, the the uncle of Mary. What's Mary's relation back to one of those those beginning folks that we talked about? Uh, you know, if that makes any sense, uh, those are the types of questions that we used to put on our aptitude tests. And you know, the, whether you scored well or whether you bombed the aptitude test, it, it never was the deciding factor of whether or not we would hire a person. So there, there were plenty of times where someone would ace that exam and we would not hire them. And there were plenty of times where, where people would fail, essentially fail those exams uh, by whatever standard the, the test had, and we would still hire them. Uh, a, a lot of times it was a data point for us, and they were usually utilized when we were on the fence 
with someone. So say, you know, someone came in, had an all right interview, their background is about average and we're kind of on the fence, you know, it's not pushing us in either direction based upon what we've seen from them. We might use the aptitude test to, to push us in one direction or the other. Um, in fact, I, I don't I don't think corporations are actually legally able to deny you solely based upon your score. So again, that's just it's just a data point. Um, for for some companies, you might be able to go to Glassdoor and figure out the exact aptitude test that they're giving out. And while it might feel like you're cheating a little bit, you can find versions of these aptitude tests somewhere online. Sometimes even the exact test online. And, and I believe that there are actually some some prep prep services somewhere, uh, somewhere out there. Um, if you do enough research, you might be wondering why these aptitude tests, uh, exist. And it's really for two reasons. Number one, uh, for the more technical jobs, you know, if you're applying for a job that's going to require, you know, number crunching on the spot, you know, I, I remember my first job at Fidelity was actually you know, taking phone calls in our trading department. And sometimes people would call with, with complex transaction requests. And it would be my responsibility to not only keep up the customer-friendly, happy face and conversational aspect of the of the phone call, but I would also have to be calculating numbers in the background, making sure that the transactions they were requesting made sense for the account and that all the numbers were there. Uh, so that's, that's one reason why the aptitude test is implemented, is to see if can you think on the spot. Uh, but another reason is is they're trying to see how well you do with the aptitude tests that you eventually have to take. Uh, the SIE, of course, can be taken on its own. You don't need to be sponsored by a firm. But if you're going to take the Series 6, Series 7, or any other exam along those lines, the, the company is going to need to hire you first before you have the opportunity to take that exam. And if you think about it from their, per, their perspective, if they hire you spend a bunch of money on onboarding you and training you. And and it's expensive for companies just to go through the process of actually saying, yes, we want to hire you and going through that. So if they're going to go through that entire process and then realize that you can't pass the test that, that you have to pass in order to do the job you were hired to do, you know that's a big problem for them. And ultimately, if you can't pass that test, you simply can't do that job, legally speaking. So that's another reason why they give you these aptitude tests is to see what are your chances of passing these these difficult licensing exams when you have to take them. Some of our listeners might be getting a little freaked out right now. Uh, if you're not a good test taker, this might be hard to hear that, that you, know, you might just even during the interview have to take a test. But I, I, I want to just share that I've seen thousands of people, literally thousands of people go through this process. And sometimes the people that do the best on the exams are not the best at the job and vice versa. I mean, some of the more successful, and I should say most successful people I know had to take these licensing exams more than once or maybe didn't do great on their initial aptitude test. Uh, I, I really think that your success in your career is more determined on what you do after you make it through these tests. Now, these tests are just your ticket to play. You got to get through them. You got to pass them in order to do the job. But ultimately, they will not define you as a person, uh, nor will they define your career. So if you're worried about that, don't. At the same time, you want to take the process serious enough uh, that you can ensure that you're going to pass the exam and that eventually you'll, you'll get the opportunity to see 
if you can grow into your career and how well you will do. So we got about nine minutes left here before we kind of hit an hour. Uh, and I think like it would be good to just walk really quickly through uh, like getting an offer and the negotiation process and then also uh, just some quick tips for first days on the job. And yeah. Perfect. Uh, so let's wrap it up. Um, when you are done with the interview, you know, go home, ref- reflect on it. And maybe to continue with the theme of this podcast, you know, think about what you did well. Think about how you might be able to improve in the next interview if you have to do another one. Uh, and ultimately, don't be shocked if it's going to take them a little bit of time to get to you. Uh, I would be surprised if you heard anything from them in the first three to four days. It usually takes a week or two for them to even respond back. And you know that, that response is uh, going to take one of a couple different forms. But before we get there... I would recommend that if you have the contact information of one of the hiring managers or maybe all the people that you talk to, you know, extend an email to them and just thank them for the opportunity. You'd be surprised how far something like that can go. And, and I think about it in maybe two different ways. I mean, number one, it shows that you're polite. And if it's a customer facing role, that's something that they might be looking out for. If you have an interaction with a client, it's always a nice touch to send them a nice, pleasant email afterwards just saying, Hey, thank you for the discussion. Love talking to you today. Hopefully we'll hear from you soon. Uh, but also on top of that, sending them an email is also going to remind them of you, which you want them to be thinking about you as they're making their their hiring decisions down the road, right? Um, so whether you send the email later that night or if you send it the next day, it's going to remind them of that inter- interaction they had with you. It's going to remind them of the interview they had. And ultimately, you want them to have you on their minds when they're making those decisions. So definitely, highly recommend that. Now, after that, you're just going to have to sit and wait. Sometimes it's going to take you know, a week or two. I, in my previous company, sometimes it took up to three to four weeks to reach back out to people, which honestly, I was not a big fan of. But With a big company like that, uh, you have to understand that there's lots of different moving parts. There's lots of different departments that are part of the the hiring process. So sometimes something something might be stuck uh, or there might be someone out of the office on vacation and that one person is just kind of a a big important cog in the wheel that that needs to make a decision. So don't take it personally. Um, Hopefully you have lots of different opportunities and you've done several different interviews so you're not just waiting to hear from one specific party. Eventually, they're going to get back in touch with you, and that could take the form of an email. Uh, and to be honest, if it's a rejection, it probably is going to come through the form of an email. It's going to say something along the lines of, you know, thank you for coming out. We were impressed by you, but ultimately we decided to go a different direction. Some kind of uh, nice, uh, nice letter, nice sounding letter that has the ultimate negative news in it. Uh, but uh, let's say it goes the other way and they liked you enough to extend you an offer. Uh, you're probably going to get a phone call. uh, And in that phone call, they'll congratulate you and say, hey, we're about to send you a letter with some more information about your role and and your starting salary. Now, that is an interesting conversation. And I think you'll get different opinions from different people. But question is, do you take what they gave you if you want to take the job? Or do you negotiate? Well, personally, my opinion, uh, and this is mine, um, I've fallen into the trap of not negotiating and just taking what they what they gave me. And then, you know, two months, three months later, as you're working in the job, you've become friends with some of your coworkers. And then you find out that your coworkers negotiated. And 
oh, well, my coworker who's literally doing the same thing is getting paid $5,000, $10,000, $15,000 more a year to do the same exact job. And it's all because they were confident enough to go through that process and, and ask for a higher number on the salary. Um, and I've, I, over my years, I've learned that I, I think that's a good part of your process. And, and especially if you're going into a sales type role, they, they might be expecting some kind of negotiation. And if you don't, that, that might, I don't know, might potentially look bad on you. Maybe, maybe not. But ultimately you have the ability of saying, Hey, you know, I really want this job. I just feel like, uh, I'm the amount of effort and the amount of work that's going to go into this job is worthy of a higher salary. Um, there's a lot of different ways that you can do it. And maybe we'll do a future podcast on the best language you can use when you are negotiating. But I, I think negotiating is fully within your realm of possibilities. And it's something that I would recommend that you do unless there's some kind of red flag there that, that maybe, that maybe, you know, maybe there's a history that you shouldn't, or maybe you heard from a friend who works there that, Hey, they don't negotiate salaries beyond that. What's the worst that can happen? They say, no, uh, we had many people at fidelity negotiate their salaries Sometimes it would work in their favor and we would up their salary. And sometimes we would just tell them, no, sorry, you know, this is, this is the salary, take it or leave it. Um, but I'll tell you, we, I never heard ever of us pulling, retracting back an offer because someone negotiated. That never happened. Uh, so what's the worst that could happen? They say no. And then if you still want the job, go with the job, work your way up. And then maybe when you get a uh, a promotion into a different job with a higher salary, maybe that's an opportunity to make up some ground there with, with the amount you're getting paid. Yeah. And I mean, just like my own personal anecdote on this, I pers- I am a bit too much of a nice guy sometimes, and I'm pretty bad at being hard on employers trying to hire me for salary. Uh, but work, what works really well as a proxy and ties in again to that first point we made about having lots of options is when you say, hey, like, this sounds great, but this other company I'm considering offered me X, right? And it, it should be true, again, because, again, that genuineness will show through your voice and kind of your tonality. But um, that it's okay to do a little bit of that and to make the other guy sweat a little bit and say, oh, shoot, well, let me see what we can do, right? Most of the time when someone's hiring you, they have a range that they can offer you, Right. Um, and so, you know, let's say for entry level finance role as a financial advisor in El Paso, Texas, that range might be like 45 to 65,000. It it might be a lot smaller, might be 45 to 55. It might be, uh, you know, it might actually be all over the place. Right. But for each job, it's different. But at the end of the day, they usually have a band that they can pick from even if they love you, they're not going to give you the top of the band right away because they need that room to negotiate when you do come back to them and tell them that you want more. So it's almost built into the process, and so you should always ask. So this brings us to our last part, which is the acceptance and the starting of your brand new job. After you accept the offer and maybe you negotiated your price, you're happy with your salary, uh, congratulations, you've made it all the way. Uh, and at that point in time, uh, your employer is going to give you an itinerary of sorts that's going to include your start date, uh, what to expect on your first day. If some places have dress codes, maybe they'll give you the dress code. Uh, 
but they're also going to disclose to you what licenses you need to take, uh, how long you have to get them done, and uh, generally speaking, the process that occurs if you don't pass those exams, which, to be honest, it usually ends in termination. So uh, you will likely have one to two weeks, if not much longer than that, between when you accept the job and when you start the job. What I always recommend to people is this is your time to shine in between when you accept the offer and when you actually start your job. Uh, you don't want to start your job, realize that you're not great at finance and that these tests are very difficult and that you need to put in every hour of every day into studying and then potentially not even get to a passing score in the exam. You want to you avoid that as much as you possibly can. And the best way to do that is to prepare in the time you have before your job starts. If you know you need to take the Series 7 or the Series 63, or even if you know you need to take the SIE, you should be spending your time preparing for those exams. Uh, it's always better to be overprepared than it is to be underprepared. And the most successful people that I ever saw that walked through Fidelity's doors on the first day were people that put a substantial amount of time into their studies before they started. Uh, you don't want to get to the point where your job is on the line, and that's stressful in itself. You know, do the work up front. Uh, and then if that means that as your partners and your colleagues at work are stressing themselves out, you know, studying until midnight every night uh, as the test gets closer and closer, uh, that means that you can chill out and you can just you can enjoy your first few weeks at, at, the, at the company. Um, some companies will give paid study time and some companies won't. Uh, you'll probably figure that out in your offer letter, and just uh, this this goes without explanation. But it's going to be a lot harder, a lot more difficult to make it through that process if they're not going to give you paid study time in your first several weeks. If they're just going to hit the ground running with whatever you're doing for your job, um, so uh, use that maybe to judge how much work you put into uh, before before you start. I never recommend going in there and never seeing any material. So maybe it's worth an investment into uh, a book uh, on the material, or maybe your employer is going to be nice enough to give you material before you even start. And if they do, definitely utilize those resources. Do as much as you can before you start. Get ahead of the curve and put yourself in a place where stress and the, the thought of losing your job is just not something that you think about. Right. Like these national firms, uh, like Fidelity, generally have a pass rate north of or higher than uh, 85%, right? So like most people are going to make it. And I think that a lot of the people that don't make it, like you said, are just not putting the work in. Uh, so be prepared to do that. Uh, understand that you might, depending on how proficient you are with this stuff, need to set aside one to two hours per weekday. Or just like a few hours per weekend day to study, right? And it's it, it, it's kind of a crunch time to get through these exams, but it's worth it because you get to keep that job you work so hard for, and then you get to move on to the actual job. The last thing I would say here is just don't let a lack of preparation stand between you and a career that you're looking for. Uh, it, depending on the job that you get hired into and the company that you initially start with, this could be a huge opportunity for you, for your family, uh, and it could take you a bunch of different places. You know, I, I never thought I would be sitting here recording a podcast, uh, you know, 14, 15 years later after I started a career in finance, but, 
You know, there's a lot of different opportunities. Uh, finance is cool. Uh, you know, money is needed to do everything from you know, starting a family, going to college, uh, traveling the world, doing the things that you like to do. If you can get your foot in the door and then put in the work necessary to pass the tests that you need to pass to keep your job, ultimately, it's going to pay off for you one way or another. Great. Well, yeah, that I think is a wrap, guys. Uh, that is our coverage of the hiring process at financial firms. Thank you very much for tuning in again to the Achievable Podcast here with Achievable and Basic Wisdom and myself uh, and Brandon. Uh, again, just sort of as an outro, uh, you know, Achievable and uh, Basic Wisdom have partnered up to build a FINRA SIE course that is free to try and will help you pass the exam before you apply to these jobs demonstrating your aptitude and also giving you a taste of what life is like in finance. Um, And yeah, we'd love to have you check it out at achievable.me.